so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. You're listening to the ERLC podcast. Hello. Hey, yo. Hello. Okay. Can you hear us? Are you on? Yeah, I can hear you. Hold on. Let me get on my AirPods. No, if only you were doing this from a, in a moving vehicle in the middle of a rainstorm. I know. Okay. Yes, we had, there was an AT&T outage in our area and they don't know how long it's going to take to get back up. Okay. Are we ready? Ready. Ready. Okay. Hello and welcome back to this week's episode of the ERLC podcast, where every week we're talking about our work here at the ERLC and focusing on what Christians need to know about the things going on in the world. I'm Josh Wester, and with me in the virtual studio today are my co-hosts, Lindsay Nicolay. Hello on this day of my first vaccination. Woohoo! There's a little bit more pep in my step because I'm excited. That's really good, Lindsay. So big day uh, in the Nicolay household because of the vaccine. And it's a big day in the Leatherwood household for an altogether different reason. Say hello, Brent Leatherwood. That's right, because it's a big day for America. So good news for you, Lindsay, but great news for the rest of us in the world because opening day is here. Baseball is back. I'm so thrilled. I'm happy for I'm happy for you too, Lindsay. In the world or just in America? You said the world, and I seem to recall that video where that man uh, from another country was quite confused about those pillows that are on the ground that people run to. <laughs> well, it's a well, global. That's, that's it is. It's a global. Fun, it's a global phenomenon. So that's right. It's a uh, it's a global phenomenon, and you know it's called the World Series uh, for a totally different reason. That maybe we'll we'll track down the reason, the history of that. At another time. Anyway, uh, we are excited for another day of podcasting. There's been some big stuff going on in the world. We're excited to run that down for you. Also, later in the show, we're going to talk to one of our closest friends of the pod, uh, Casey Huff. Casey is a pastor uh, down in Texas. He also does a lot of work with us, uh, helping us produce good content on religious liberty and other areas with the ERLC. And so we're excited for you to get to meet him and to have that conversation with him later in the show. Lindsay, take us into it. Tell us what the ERLC has been talking about this week. Well, I'd be remiss if I didn't say uh, happy Good Friday, since this is airing on on Friday. And um, this is this is one of the cornerstones of our hope, the celebration of Christ crucified. And so we we wanted to obviously remember and celebrate that and and the resurrection coming, Sundays are coming on our site this week. So we had a piece by Adrian Warnock from a book that he'd written several years ago. And it's titled, 10 Things You Should Know About the Resurrection. And this piece was just so good because it helped me to meditate on the importance of the resurrection, helped me to redirect my heart toward worshiping Christ for what He has done for us as believers. And so just, just a taste of some of the things that He reminds us of. 
The resurrection is the core of the Christian message and should never be neglected or assumed. Uh, belief in Jesus's physical resurrection is the defining doctrine of Christianity. The resurrection gives us hope that goes beyond the grave. And then just one more, the resurrection unites every Christian with a life-giving force that raised Jesus from the dead. And we we needed to know that life-giving force this year where it felt like so many things metaphorically died in our lives. So I would encourage you as you're headed toward Easter and your celebrations to just pause, read this article, and thank the Lord for what He has done on our behalf. Lindsay, that was such a good reflection. I know you're reflecting on another piece, but wow, like that gets me pumped for Easter Sunday. I mean, my family has been having a lot of conversations this week about the importance of Holy Week and the lead up to Easter and how all of our hope hangs on the resurrection. And so, man, that was beautiful. And what, uh, just take stock of where we were a year ago. Like I am, last year, I remember, you know, Dr. Moore's piece in Christianity Today was coming out. And there were a lot of us that were kind of like in the, in a state of like, almost like trepidation about Easter. Like so many of us across the country weren't, weren't going to actually be able to gather for Easter. Um, was so much about the virus was just completely unknown. And so it was, uh, I mean, I don't ever want to say this about Easter, but I mean, we were just in the midst overall, uh, in culture of a season that we were just really kind of muddling through. And, um, I'm, I'm kind of right where, where you are, Lindsay and, and Josh, I'm, I'm pumped that, you know, this is good Friday and Easter is on Sunday. And it feels just like, it just feels like a, not a complete 180 from last year, but gosh, there's just so much more hope and optimism, uh, this year. And that's what Easter should always have. Absolutely. And that's a good point. I've been walking around our yard looking at these plants that our friends helped us plant last year and seeing them spring up from the ground, which is just fun to watch. But it's just, it's a reminder of what you just said and a reminder that the Lord makes all things new. And on a funny quick note, I have a two-year-old and I was trying to be intentional with her to talk about things like Josh was saying with his kids. It just doesn't doesn't work with a two-year-old and or I'm just not gifted at it. <laughs> Tried to draw a cross to have her color and that just didn't work. And we moved on to squirrels and other things. So maybe next year. So the second article that I wanted to talk to you all about is by Jason Thacker, and he has an article titled, Why Reading Books You Disagree With Helps You Grow. He talks a lot about what's going on in, on the internet these days and social media and outrage culture and how we're in our little bubbles surrounded by people's opinions that validate what we believe. And, and anytime we interact with people who disagree with us, it is oftentimes laced with just vitriol and hate and malice and unbelief and and it's there's just a lack of civility and kindness and um respectfulness so so Jason in his studies and in, in the work that he's doing and um a degree that he's pursuing has had to read widely and he just encourages us that reading like this will help us to understand our neighbor better and to love our neighbor better. And I appreciated that because if we don't truly understand where our neighbor is coming from or why they think the way that they think, we might have trouble uh, lovingly interacting with them and humbly having conversations with them about very important matters. So I highly commend this piece to you. Well, you know, it, in uh, especially in the work that, that we do, um, 
that is in the in the public square, uh, where we we often find ourselves in the position of uh, disagreeing with other prominent figures or organizations uh, that are in the public square. We should always be able to restate what our opponents stand for in a in a gracious way that they would agree with, uh, so that then we can kind of contend with it on a fair, above-board kind of way. And you can't do that if you don't take the time to actually understand what it is that that those you don't agree with are, are actually advancing. And that's what I love. Like, that's the spirit here uh, behind what Jason's writing. Like, you you need to, as a, as a citizen of this world, like, you just need to encounter things that don't confirm your priors. And frankly, that makes you a more interesting person. And uh, so I thought this was sage advice uh, that Jason was providing here. I'll just steal uh, a thing from our sister podcast, Capital Conversations, and just say retweet. And I'll steal a thing from our podcast and say, that's right, Josh. Wait, is that what you say? That's right? Or do you say that's absolutely right? I can't remember. It's exactly right, Lindsay. It's exactly that's right. Exactly right. That's exactly right. Right. Because that's what's we, gonna we, be... like, we just hit it on the nose. It's just a, you know. <laughs> that's exactly <bullseye>. right. <laughs> that's what's going to be on our podcast t-shirts. Just heads up, everybody, if you want some merch. Really, not really, but. Yes. Yeah, so, and I, I confess this is hard for me because I, I am either too proud or am not a good thinker or something, but I've learned a lot about this, especially working at the ERLC and with y'all, my colleagues and, and how to do this well. And that doesn't mean as listeners uh, that you have to read academic book, like these big academic books that you disagree with or something. I mean, it can be um, more, of Christian living books from somebody that you disagree with or or something like that. But well, well here's what I would I would add to that. Right. We're not we're not trying to equip people to to go out there and be like professional debaters, right? Uh but it 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 helps you have an understanding. Um you know, let's say let's say you live down the street from from someone who is a uh you know, really big into politics and and they're a big partisan activist. I mean, it would be helpful if if maybe you understood what is driving them. Uh, a lot of those folks, you know, especially if they're really in, in like organized politics, they, they, they like their party platforms. Like, hey, you may not agree with all of it, but go understand maybe what's in their 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 party's platform or whatever. Because A, you'll understand where they're coming from and it'll just make you a better neighbor, uh, which, you know, that's something we should strive to do as Christians. Yeah. And just have some humility and understand that even if you feel very confident in your position, you have something to learn even from the people that you disagree with. I mean, it's, it is it is a fairly basic thing to say that all of us stand to benefit, not just from listening to the people that we know we have a lot of alignment with, but from those that we might not. And the last thing I'll say is that takes intentionality, especially in our day and age and in our culture. So you have to be intentional about thinking that way and uh, about cultivating that. And the final article I want to highlight is by Emily Richards. And Emily is the head of Show Hope, which is an adoption agency. And it's titled, Why Building Connection and Trust is Vital for Vulnerable Children, the Gospel in Show Hope's Pre- and Post-Adoption Support. So you know that here at the ERLC, our heart is for life, for uh, the dignity of every individual from womb to tomb. And part of that means that our heart is for adoption and foster care. And of course, we see the glorious doctrine of adoption in 
the Bible, in, especially in, in the New Testament, where when we trust in Christ, God adopts us into his family as his sons and daughters. And um, what a picture of the gospel when the Lord calls families to do that. Like our beloved friend and co-host Josh and his family, bringing their sweet daughter into their home and making her a Wester and um, just a demonstration of what the Lord does for us. So anyway, Show Hope has this incredible ministry where they do provide this pre- and post-adoption support. And part of the reason is because children who are in foster care and who have been adopted oftentimes have come from really hard situations and they deal with trauma and they have a hard time trusting these these new parents and these adults who are taking care of them and connecting with them. But as Emily points out, connection and trust is something that God has made us for. He's made us for community, and haven't we experienced that as we've lacked it this past year? And it's something that we we need, ideally, to thrive. So Show Hope wants to come alongside people, educate them in this, and um, help these adoptive families to thrive. I highly recommend their ministry to you. You can, you can just type in Google Show Hope, and it will come right up. And I highly recommend this article to you. Lindsay, I love that we're putting adoption front and center. Uh, You're exactly right about when you talk about the fact that in so many cases, children who are adopted into families are coming from situations that are very hard and difficult. And um, adoption itself is existing because of some kind of brokenness or trauma. And so even though it is this wonderful thing that we really, really love, even if you think about just our divine story of God adopting us into his family— That starts because it's necessary because of sin, because of our separation from God, because of the brokenness that exists there. Well, it's not any different uh, for these families who are doing this really wonderful thing of welcoming a child into their home and into their family. There there is still brokenness and trauma there. And so it's incredibly important to be able to, to minister to families and to provide that kind of care and support because adoption is, as Christians, I mean, Lindsay, you just articulated it beautifully. It is one of those things that we are called to because it's something that God has brought us He's made a part of our own story. And so I, I just think I think that's incredible. The ministry they have there at Show Hope is amazing. If you're not familiar with it, uh, you should be because it is one of the best Christian organizations that I am aware of doing one of the most important things that Christians should be involved in. Now, I know I tell you as listeners all the time that we have many more resources and they are all great but it's always true. And we're so thankful for the people that acquire pieces for us, edit, who write in order to help educate you and equip the church to be able to answer answer the issues of our day well, according to the Bible. So please go to our website, check out the various resources that we have, check out these res- resources that we were just talking about. But for now, Josh and Brent, that is your look at what's happening on ERLC.com. Hey, Lindsay. That was really excellent, particularly this week. It was a really, really good rundown. And that takes us to the culture section for the week. So Brent, tell us what's going on in the world. All right. Thanks for that, Josh. And Lindsay, as always, appreciate your rundown. So let's turn our attention to culture. We'll start this week with news from the world of faith. So over in North Carolina, the Biblical Recorder uh, reports that church members are in the minority for the first time in at least eight decades with just 47% identifying with a congregation, Gallup said in a new poll released on March 29th. That number was 70% in 1999. 
A growth in adults with no religious preference and lower rates of church membership among people who do have a religion are major trends driving the decline, Gallup says. Younger generations hold the highest rates of those with no religious preference, including 31% of millennials and 33% of adult Generation Z, which are those born in the mid-1990s to early 2010s. Concurrently, among those who do affiliate with a religion, declines since the turn of the century were the highest among younger generations, with the share of millennials declining from 63% in the year 2000 to 50% in 2020. So this raises a couple of interesting questions, Lindsay and Josh, and so I'll pose these to y'all. A lot of faith leaders have talked about living in a post-Christian America. Does this mean that we're officially there? So I think that's a really good question, Brent. And obviously, on its face, when you read the story or hear these stats about uh, about church membership, it's staggering because all of us, you know, if you grew up in the United States, uh, particularly if you grew up in this kind of evangelical culture than we did, you could basically take it for granted that you were living, e- even if you wouldn't say that America is a Christian nation, you could easily see that the United States have been a Christianized nation. Like there, there were so many aspects of, of what it means to be an American or of American society that lined up well, or at least showed some evidence of the influence of Christianity. Well, I started thinking about this particular issue several years ago. I was sitting at, I think I was at the Summit Church in Raleigh-Durham, and they had Tim Keller come and speak at some conference that I was attending. And in that sermon or talk that he was doing, he talked about uh, this phenomenon of seeing of secularization, of seeing more and more Americans identify as being non-religious. And here's the really insightful thing that he talked about that that helped me a lot put this into perspective. One of the things that Keller said is what we are looking at right now is what he called the death of the mushy middle. And that resonated with me a great deal. What he was saying is that as secularization has happened and is continuing to happen all around us, we are seeing that the benefit of identifying with a particular church or with a particular religion is starting to lose some of its social capital. In other words, if you move to a new town and you're starting a business or you're trying to succeed in something, it's no longer nearly as important what church that you attend or what religion you might practice in order to be successful. Well, that is not actually all that bad of a thing because what we're talking about is the fact that there's no, there's no reward for cultural Christianity, not in the same way that there used to be for decades and decades in American life. And one of the things that means, though, is that as those uh, as those uh, social incentives go down, one of the things that we're looking at is church membership. People who week in and week out attend their churches, serve their communities, uh, give their tithes and offerings, those people who are dedicated to the mission of the church and are active participants in the life of the local church, they're not doing it for any other reasons. They're doing it there because they've had a radical, life-changing encounter with Jesus. And so I think it can be really jarring for people when they hear uh, this and they see, talk about a a post-Christian American future. And while that will inevitably bring some things that will be very, very negative for Christians— The important thing for us to remember is that Jesus has promised us that he will build his church. He is committed to the task of of building the church, fulfilling his mission, seeing people all across the world of every tribe, tongue, and nation come to saving faith 
in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so there's a ton of hope there, even if you look at these statistics and they are discouraging. That's a great answer. And so I guess more broadly, that leads to kind of the second question. Is a decline in church membership, you know, should we see that the same as a decline in religious belief overall? Like, are those two different things or are those two things the same? Josh, your comments were really helpful. And I, you know, I am no expert and I really have no idea. What I do wonder is this decline in church membership, is that the same as decline of religious belief? I wonder if maybe it reveals more of a low view of the church, a low ecclesiology. Um, Christians who are genuinely Christians, who are trusting in Christ alone as their salvation, who have a lack of discipleship when it comes to the, the importance of the local church and church membership, and or they have a distrust of the church because of something that they've experienced, as we've seen in so many of the abuse cases, tragically. So maybe that is part of the answer. I, I can only speculate as one who is definitely not an expert, but has friends who are Christians and are not actively involved in church, which, for the record, I don't agree with. I just don't think it's malicious on their part. That's, that's I was going to say that exact same example from our own lives. Uh, and, I mean, we should point out, right, you know, the, the plural of anecdote is is not data. But I, I, I can point to uh, several friends in our lives, some of them very close, where they are strong believers but for whatever reason, they, they just don't quite see the value in formally uh, having a membership uh, at our church, which is, you know, I mean, for me, that's that's amazing, you know, that, that someone could see that. But I think that's probably, I mean, particularly for Christians, uh, that is uh, that is certainly uh, something that uh, that hopefully we can we can help people understand the beauty of being formally a part of a church and being a member and all the the great stuff that comes with that. Yeah, and I think we just need to say, look, the the Bible and authentic Christianity, it's got nothing for the idea of being spiritual but not religious. It's got nothing for uh, the Christian who is trying to be a Lone Ranger or some kind of pioneer but is not tethered to a local body of believers. And that's not at all to discount the fact that some people have had really negative experiences in local churches. Like, I get that, and it can be terrible. But the the truth is that even in our own body of churches in the Southern Baptist Convention, there are 46,000 SBC churches. That's significant. In in most places, there are faithful, though imperfect, gospel-preaching, Bible-believing churches that are loving communities waiting for people to be plugged into. And so we would just encourage it. Look, e even if you've had a bad experience in the past, uh, the local church is the center of God's plan to accomplish his mission of taking the gospel to the ends of the earth and to seeing Christians become and experience uh, the abundant life that Jesus has set forth for us right now in the present. And so the local church is not optional, it's critical. And we just, I would commend it. That is the precise reason why Christ came and died and rose again, to purchased his bride. He loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her and he uh, might present the church to himself in splendor. So he rises again for the glory of the Father and, and for the church to purchase his bride. So we can't cast her off. That's so good. 
That's so good, Lindsay. And for Holy Week, all of you faithful Friday afternoon ERLC podcast listeners or Saturday morning on your run listeners, Julie Masson, looking at you, we just want to commend. There's also a great podcast that released this week between Dr. Moore and Tim Keller that was out for Holy Week. And if you're listening to this, this would be a great chance, either Saturday or Sunday, uh, to, to grab that podcast and listen to it because, man, they talked about some really appropriate stuff for this particular moment. Absolutely. Uh, just just in your search bar, just uh, search for Russell Moore or the name of his uh, podcast is called Signposts, and it'll be the first one that pops up, and it is a fantastic interview with a giant, uh, Tim Keller. So, all right, moving on. Uh, next, we go to the global stage where a major mishap was finally corrected this week. So the New York Times is reporting almost a week after an errant cargo ship brought a vital maritime passageway to a halt, the Suez Canal is open for business again. The mammoth cargo ship blocking the canal was wrenched from the shoreline and finally set free on Monday, raising hopes that one of the world's most vital maritime routes would quickly rebound and limit the fallout of a disruption that had paralyzed billions of dollars in global trade. Within hours, other ships awaiting transit through the 120-mile-long waterway that connects the Mediterranean and Red Seas waylaid for nearly a week, fired up their engines, and began moving again. Do y'all understand how large this ship was? It's the size of the Empire State Building, (laughs) and it got crooked in the canal. Like this is like, how did this happen? And so this is just, just show how small we mere humans are. Uh, do you know what finally, like after all of our attempts with, you know, bulldozers and everything, do you know what finally was able to free this ship? No, you don't. Okay. That's what the silence Wasn't means. It water? <laughs> well, yes, the water rising. The moon causing the tides to rise is what actually helped float the ship and put it over over the threshold to make sure that it was, uh, I guess, seaworthy once again. So um, I just think that's fascinating. So thank you, Lord, for creating the moon. Brent, is that right that it was the size? It is the size of the Empire State Building? Because that yes. is one stat I had not heard. It is a skyscraper is in the water. Isn't that crazy? Also, you missed... You missed a great opportunity to use the word cattywampus. <laughs> That's right. I did. Okay, moving to the COVID front, ABC News is reporting that Pfizer now says that its COVID-19 vaccine is 100% effective against the virus in children ranging from ages 12 to 15, the company announced in a press release on Wednesday. In a placebo-controlled trial, Of 2,260 adolescents, none of the participants who received the real vaccine developed COVID-19, the company said. This is remarkable news, and it's it's good news for, you know, those who might be in that age range that are are vulnerable and susceptible, uh, particularly to this virus, but I'm just as hopeful uh, that it is great news for those parts of the country where schools remain either closed or, or all virtual, like this, this should be something that if we can get it, if we can get shots in the arms of kids this this age range, like this should remove any barrier uh, for for schools to to finally reopen in a in a safe way, both for the students and the teachers. 
it's just unbelievable, man. Like, praise God for this medical miracle and the fact that we're talking about 100% effective. I mean, that is, that's shooting the moon. And it just is surreal to me that this time last year, we were hoping we could get good tests to see if you had COVID. Now we're talking about the vaccines that will keep you from getting it. That is, man, it is just amazing. Well, and honestly, we we need uh, that bit of good news because unfortunately, the, the numbers aren't looking quite as good as they have been across the country. So Axios reports this week that America- I feel like we need a sad made- trombone right there. Like a <laughs> want, want. <laughs> want, want, yeah. <laughs> Axios is reporting that America may be at the beginning of a fourth wave in the pandemic. It will almost certainly be far less deadly than the previous three because uh, we have gotten, I think I think the latest estimate I saw was uh, about 16 to 17% of the nation now is vaccinated, which is great. But as Axios reports, this persistent failure to contain the virus has real consequences and will only make it harder to put COVID-19 behind us. On average, roughly 63,000 Americans per day were diagnosed with COVID infections over the past week. To put that in perspective, that's a 17% increase from the week before. So it's not uh, the dramatic rise that we saw, you know, late last summer or uh, late in the fall, right around Christmas time. But that said, Let's continue to try and buckle down and let's let's get those vaccines uh, like Lindsay, Lindsay mentioned earlier that she had gotten. All right. On the domestic front elsewhere, there was some other major news items uh, to cover. So in Kentucky this week from the, the Herald leader in Lexington, the Kentucky Senate gave final passage to a constitutional amendment that declares there is no right to an abortion in Kentucky. House Bill 91 would add this phrase to the Kentucky Constitution. Quote, to protect human life, nothing in this Constitution shall be construed to secure or protect a right to abortion or require the funding of abortion. The Constitution would then preempt any court ruling that could legalize abortion in the state should the federal Supreme Court reverse its ruling that guarantees a right to an abortion from the Roe v. Wade Supreme Court decision. Now, this bill uh, will go before Kentuckians Uh, in the form of a constitutional amendment, and that will appear on the November 2022 ballot. Should note that Governor Andy Beshear does not have the authority to veto the proposed constitutional amendment, which, uh, you know, this is pretty significant uh, and certainly advances uh, the pro-life cause. And uh, more and more states are are taking uh, these sorts of actions, and it's certainly something uh, to be applauded by Christians. Brent, you nailed it there, man. Like what we're talking about in Kentucky with this constitutional amendment, it is particularly important should the Supreme Court's uh, landmark abortion decisions fall, and that would be Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey. Uh, if those were to be overturned, we've talked about many times that that means that abortion laws would be reverted back to the states, and whatever the law on the books in the states, uh, the various states are, that would be that would determine whether or not abortion is allowed there or not. And so for Kentucky uh, to take this step via a constitutional amendment would, if the voters do affirm it, would ensure that should the Supreme Court decision in Roe be reversed or overturned, that abortions will not happen in the Commonwealth of Kentucky. And on a sad note, there was major news uncovered by friend of the RLC, David French, and his wife and best-selling author, Nancy French, about the uh, Canuck Camp. 
So this originally appeared uh, over at the Dispatch uh, News outlet, and then Christianity Today uh, picked up and, and did a little bit more reporting. So this is from the CT piece, but the original credit uh, comes from the French's and uh, the Dispatch. While 19 victims were identified in the initial investigation against Pete Newman, who is currently serving a sentence in jail for abusing uh, young boys at the camp. A civil complaint tallied at least 57, and a prosecutor in the case estimates there could be hundreds over Newman's 15 years at the Missouri camp, according to this report published Sunday by David and Nancy French through the conservative outlet, The Dispatch. The French's investigation noted how the number of Canacook victims who have come forward over the years remains unknown. Many have been settled complaints with non-disclosure agreements, which do not permit victims to speak out about what happened to them. And a 12th anonymous victim filed a lawsuit this year. So uh, the Frenches did this deep dive into, uh, honestly, a camp that is is well-known and in many instances beloved uh, in the Christian world. And it's just more evidence, the latest evidence that uh, abuse is amongst us and we need to be on guard. And sadly, we even need to be on guard in contexts that are especially Christian. It is beyond sad. And honestly, my sister grew up going there, my stepsister, and um, she loved her time there. But I tried to read this article and I just could not get through the first couple of paragraphs, because it is just so horrendous what what this man did to to these kids. And I just, it just makes me want to say, come Lord Jesus and make, make all of this right. Um, like you said, we have to be vigilant in our churches. And that's why, that's why uh, the ERLC has been involved in the Caring Well Initiative, seeking to make our churches safe for those who are victims of abuse and safe from abuse. Yeah, I read this from David on Sunday, and it was just devastating. I mean, the the toll of the last several years of this apocalypse uh, in the sense of an unveiling of sexual abuse in Christian spaces, and we've seen it everywhere. We've seen it uh, with Me Too uh, across all sectors of society, but as Christians, we want to be especially attentive to what is going on in our own midst, and this is devastating, and we, and we know that this has happened in these spaces that are supposed to be safe places for kids who are uh, trying to be spiritually cultivated, but instead for them to have suffered the worst kinds of abuse. I mean, it is, it's not disheartening. It's disgusting. It is maddening. It is terrible. And I think that my big prayer, and I would ask, you know, just the listeners to join us in this is to say that we would use this that God would use all of this as a way to change, fundamentally change the culture of our churches and our Christian institutions to make them places, as we say through the Caring Well Initiative all the time, that are safe for survivors and safe from abuse. Places that the vulnerable are not preyed upon, but they're cared for. May God bring that out of this. That's a good word, Josh. All right. To, to end this section on a really high note, Baseball is back. As we mentioned earlier, uh, America's pastime is here once again, and it, it couldn't get here soon enough. 
So after a 60-game season in 2020, Axios reports, this year's complete 162-game schedule began on Thursday because when our listeners are listening to this episode, it will be Friday, which, just a little bit of trivia, the the second day of the baseball season is always an off day for every team. Why? Just in case there there are any problems with the first game, such as a rainout, they want to get that game immediately scheduled so that way the schedule doesn't have any issues. And uh, this is a longstanding tradition in baseball. And um, but I'm just glad that the season has officially begun. It's officially underway. As a matter of fact, we have our first snow game of the season taking place up in Detroit. Um, so that's always interesting to say, see baseball played in snow. But really, the news that you need to know is that the Atlanta Braves began their season against the Philadelphia Phillies at 3.05 on Thursday. And speaking to you from the, the past, because I have no idea how the game is going to turn out. I'm just my I'm brimming with optimism for the Braves this season. And shout out to our trustee chairman, David Prince, who's also a fellow Braves fan, and he can't wait either. Yeah, I mean, David David Prince is a diehard Atlanta Braves fan. He keeps his kids home from school on opening day, and I don't feel bad about saying that because he tweeted it yesterday. Uh, it is a tradition <laughs> in the Prince household, and they have eight children, and none of them have ever gone to school on opening day. I think that is such a cool thing that it is like a defining feature of their family. Uh, we're recording this on April 1st, and I am in the midst of, speaking of sports news, just, just praying that it's an April Fool's joke that Roy Williams is retiring as the head coach of the UNC Tar Heel basketball team. But I think it's real. I think it's sad. And look, at least we have baseball to turn our attention toward right now. That's right. So, Lindsay, Josh, that's your look at This Week in Culture. So now we're about to talk to our friend, Casey. Casey is the pastor of Copperfield Church in Northwest Houston. He has also uh, been involved with the ERLC for a long time. He is a PhD graduate from New Orleans Seminary, and, and he is a longtime friend of uh, the pod and the ERLC, and he does a bunch of writing for us, particularly on things related to uh, religious liberty, but a whole host of other issues as well. And Look, he's just somebody we're really excited to talk to and bring on the podcast today. So, Casey, thanks for joining us. As we are getting started, would you just tell our audience a little bit about yourself and how you're serving in ministry right now? And while you're at it, would you tell us one thing that God is teaching you in this season of life and ministry? Sure. Well, hey, it's, I appreciate you guys letting me uh, jump on. Uh, I, yeah, just longtime listener and uh, appreciate the work you guys do. And I am serving primarily in ministry as the lead pastor of Copperfield Church in Northwest Houston. Uh, I was called to Copperfield, I think it was actually April 28, 2019. So uh, still relatively new uh, in the role here. Uh, in addition to uh, serving as lead pastor at Copperfield, though, I also serve at Luther Rice College and Seminary as uh, assistant professor of biblical interpretation. So I essentially teach undergraduate and graduate level courses in hermeneutics and biblical interpretation. So, you know, in, in terms of things that the Lord has been teaching me in this season, one of the things that he's driven home has just been the a demonstration of the sufficiency of his word for ministry. Obviously, God's word's always been sufficient at every point in redemptive history. But when, you know, working through the dynamics of living a church in the present cultural circumstances regarding politics and a pandemic and whatnot, he, he has just been so faithful. God's been so faithful to refresh my heart and my mind with a confidence in his word to accomplish uh, his work in and through the church. And so um, it may be kind of a cliche, but 
I've been very grateful that God has just shown that His Word is is able, uh, especially with so much uncertainty uh, facing pastors and ministry uh, these days. And so, it's kind of kind of where we're at and and, and what we're doing, and, and grateful to God for uh, for for His faithfulness in that regard. That's good stuff, right there, Casey. All right, so. What are the things in culture that you and the folks around you are paying attention to these days? Yeah, so, you know, personally, I, I've been thinking a, a pretty good bit about the role of of the Bible in the life of the Christian, in the life of the local church, uh, which that may sound like, wow, obviously, Pastor, that's what you would, you would be doing, right, is, is helping people understand their Bible in the context of their culture. But uh, especially we've been thinking about that as we're facing significant shifts in culture. So, uh, for instance, I've been wrestling with how to equip people um, to not only read and understand God's Word, but also um, how to live by it in a world that's growing more and more hostile to the uh, the tenets of, of a kind of a biblical worldview. And so sadly, one of the things I, I feel like I'm seeing a lot, we talk about a lot as a leadership team and, and friends that I uh, correspond with is, you know, in our culture, there's there's so much hostility between fellow image bearers, and sadly, a lot of that is happening in the context of of the church. So you see people that claim to know and understand God's will, and instead of uh, thinking about their relationships with others in light of that common image bearing, there's there's a great deal of hostility, and so this this hostility may be rooted in you know different political opinions might be rooted in other things, but there's this pronounced us-against-them mentality uh, that, as far as I can tell, is very contrary to a, to a great commandment and great commission mentality uh, that all Christians should possess as followers of Christ. So if I was just going to kind of use an example, so I had a conversation with one of my sons uh, earlier this week regarding uh, homosexuality and transgenderism. Uh, in light of a question that he had about uh, Little Nas X. Now, I'm, I'm not going to act like everybody that listens to the RLC podcast knows exactly what I'm talking about with that, but just a, a little bit of background on that is this Little Nas X uh, is a rapper that performed a really, really popular song, Old Town Road. Uh, and he recently released, uh, you know, re- really a rather pr- depraved music video that depicts him in hell with the devil and doing things that I'm, I'm going to spare the audience of. So my son is at baseball practice, and he asked me about it on the way home. And my son, I, I kind of asked him, so what did your friends think about this video? My son hasn't seen it. And uh, he said, well, you know, they were really disgusted and you know, and, and, and whatnot. And that's, I kind of, I kind of probed a little bit in where he was at because, you know, again, here's this, this cultural moment where there's this great us against them. And so his, um, his teammates that, I mean, they're young, you know, middle school are expressing disgust, disdain over this video and, and whatnot. And there was a sense in which the disgust and disdain was pronounced in many ways, kind of like little Nas X is the enemy. Get rid of him. It just, just kind of a uh, the reverse of what we see in kind of council culture within um, more mainline. It was kind of this idea of just uh, here's an enemy, here's a problem. We ought to have this kind of thing um, that we shouldn't have this type of thing in our life and whatnot. And as I'm talking to my son, I'm I'm recognizing within even some of his own language that. If, if I'm not careful in this moment, I'm going to kind of communicate to him, yeah, you're right, he's the enemy. 
When in reality, uh, you think about the Getty song, I think it's of Church of Rise, where, where they make the distinction between the call to war to love the captive soul, but to rage against the captor. I don't want to communicate anything to my son. I don't want to communicate with him, yes, son, that, that type of behavior is acceptable, but at the same time, I don't want to communicate to my son, people that are sinners are the enemy. So we're, we're, we're having this conversation that, yes, little Nas X actions and lifestyle are contrary to God's will for humanity. It's wrong, yet Christ came to save sinners, son. So it's, it's like if we, if we hate people that are sinners, we will not be inclined to pray for them. We will not be inclined to share the good news of God's redemption in Christ with them. You know, if we view our neighbors as enemies, we're far less likely to invite them to church, offer helping hand, you know, care for them when they're going through difficulties. So thinking about that moment of where there's this pronounced us against them within culture and what it means to be a Christian in culture, I'm I'm having to find myself making distinctions with my with my kids and with church members are saying, you know, I hear them talk about a, you know, I hear a church member or someone say say something on Facebook about a person of a different political persuasion than them. And I'm just wanting to remind them, you do realize that these people that are different from you, though their lifestyles may be contrary to God's will, and though um, we recognize that God has said very clear things about their behavior, and we recognize those things, but that those things ought to provoke a sympathy and a compassion within us to go pursue them with the gospel, not the type of thing where we build walls and we we take up arms and we we go to war with people be because uh, they're living as sinners. I mean, what what do, what do we expect? And so that that is probably the thing that within culture I'm having the most conversations about with my children and church members, not to view those that are held captive by uh, Satan and his schemes as his enemies, but as people that we want to see rescued, just as we were before the gospel uh, impacted us. Yeah, man, that is that is so good. You know, we we ask that question basically every time to every guest, and we are never, you know, we're not looking for one thing, but what that rundown that you just gave us, particularly about the conversation you had with your son, how you were able to take this thing in culture and use it to explain how Christians are supposed to act with people in the world, that is, I mean, that is so helpful. Um, switching gears for a second then, so this last year has been such a strange thing for pastors. I've had so many conversations with pastors uh, to talk about how no one equipped them for pastoring a church in the midst of a pandemic. Like that is not a class you take in seminary. It's not a thing that any of us <laughs> were really, you know, anticipating. And so could you tell us, like, especially as you're still fairly early into your pastor, what's it been like in this transition season and trying to lead your church well during COVID? Yeah. Wow. So that's that's a great question. So the transition has certainly been interesting. Reflecting upon it even in the last few weeks, I have, at least at Copperfield, I've, I've spent more time pastoring in a pandemic than I have not pastoring in a pandemic at Copperfield. So the amount of time has has really influenced the pastoral dynamic. Now, now we have a great team at the church, and we have uh, a good community of people. Uh, God has been exceedingly faithful to Copperfield. I mean, we, we, we've seen struggles that um, a lot of churches have seen. But I think that some of the things that, that I've encountered have been— you know, if you're going to shepherd people, you need to know uh, your sheep and uh, or Christ's sheep. 
and you know, it's it's hard to get to know people. You know, uh, getting to know their names um, and associating a name uh, with a face is hard <laughs> when everyone's wearing a mask. There was very, in a very real way, I didn't even have a category for it, but a feeling of decision fatigue early on in the process. Um, I can remember, I felt like I was writing an email every few days, shifting a plan for the weekend and it, it just, it was, it was hard. And so I, my heart hurts for my brothers and sisters in ministry that are, that have had to go through that. I mean, I, I keep, I keep feeling like I see ministers walking away from ministry right now. I know of churches that are, that are closing as a result. So it's, it's been, it's been hard in that regard. I'm personally grateful um, and blessed that that hasn't always been the exact story for me. But I, I think that one of the things that's reinforced was how important it is for um, congregations to express uh, support for uh, the leadership and to enter into those conversations with them and try to be understanding. You know, um, I would imagine it was a lot harder to navigate that among churches with church members that we're more concerned with liberty than love. And, uh, you know, that's that's me speaking that. I, I'm not representing anybody else's position, but uh, as I read the New Testament, I'm just, I'm overwhelmed by how often uh, New Testament authors highlight the need to live in love and care and concern for others and to not use your liberty as an opportunity for the flesh or to help others fail, uh, or to cause others to fall and fail. And so we faced a lot of things like that. We faced... Uh, the, the George Floyd death murder in uh, M- Minneapolis, and we faced that um, as a city. There were just so many contributing factors, and I'm I'm very 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 grateful for God's mercy in uh, in the work here in the way that uh, my my congregation came around me, and I often would receive a text message of Hey, thank you. We're behind you. We're uh, we're helping out. Uh, you know, we're we're willing to help in any way. We understand the difficult situation you're in. But my heart hurts for my, my brothers and sisters that didn't have that that benefit of of people living in an understanding way regarding just the difficulty of making decisions. Uh, but again, I think one of the things that I mentioned earlier that God has has shown and proven true is the fact that uh, even in the midst of a pandemic, His Word had a sufficiency about it that 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 provided us principles and guidance to make decisions where it didn't spell out exactly what we were going to do in our atrium regarding social distancing. But it there were there were principles there that helped us make decisions that um, we felt like honored the Lord and showed love to our neighbor without without acting in um, fear or uh, rebellion against his word or, or local government. So kind of, kind of an interesting thing. Well, Casey, that was a, certainly a good word, a lot of wisdom in there, particularly, you know, in this week where the George Floyd uh, trial, the murder trial is, uh, you know, now unfolding in front of us. Uh, in news reports. And so uh, leading your church both back during that moment when that tragedy uh, occurred, and, and now even uh, in this moment uh, where the news is is put right in front of us again, um, that's certainly a helpful word. So, all right, coming out of COVID, uh, is there anything that you as a pastor or your church is rethinking or particularly excited about in uh, this next season of ministry? Well, you know... That's a that's a great question. One of the things that COVID did was it made so our particular local ministry, and I'm sure every ministry, 
it forced us to put things on the table that we may not have ever put on the table to reconsider in terms of ministry models and philosophies so that we haven't really thought through, um, well, for instance, if you take the trellis and the vine analogy, we haven't really thought through the the vine work of that spiritual cultivation a lot differently. We've been continuing to hit home the, the centrality and supremacy of God and His Word, but we have been thinking about the trellis. We have been thinking, okay, how can we structure in such a way that it most helpfully supports divine work, the spiritual work that's taking place in the context of the church, where, you know, a year and a half ago, we would have never even thought about it because things were kind of running along. But now we're thinking, you know, maybe there's some ways that we can make decisions that streamline some areas, that eliminate unnecessary expenses, that um, highlight the need for a a greater dependence on volunteer ministry versus paid ministry, and just thinking through more creative ways to use our space. Um, you know, one of the things that we're doing, just just one example is for Easter Sunday, um, uh, we we normally have a very large Christmas Eve service. And so for our Christmas Eve service, we built uh, an outdoor stage and we thought about building an outdoor stage. We said, well, why don't we build it? You know, let's, we don't know how long we're going to be in the situation where we can't house everyone that would show up for big events. So let's, uh, let's build a, a fairly permanent stage. And so we built one, and we've done a few outdoor services, and we're we're planning a very large Easter outdoor service. So we have a we have a stage that's appropriate already that's built for that. And even though that that's not something that we absolutely have to do, it has opened some opportunities for us to reach into our community in a way that we probably wouldn't have done in the past without it. So you know, just it's an example of a, of a ministry model where we're we're using the resources that God gave us right here in the middle of our community to. To, to think outside of a box that we we'd have never thought about having an outdoor service in the past just because it we wouldn't have it, we wouldn't have seen how beneficial it was but uh, you know now we have people that are passing by we have an apartment complex right next to our building and you know there are people sitting out on their um, their balconies listening to our services uh, whenever we meet outside and so you know that that's just that's just one example of of, of God's providence being really gracious and kind to us uh, when we we'd have never thought in those terms um, but before this. Yeah, man, I love that because that is one of the things that has been so encouraging, even in the midst of such a kind of weird and awful time, has been to see churches explore all kinds of options and come up with all kinds of creative ideas to continue to do ministry. A lot of those ideas are going to continue to serve these churches going forward. And so this is that's just a really uh, cool example from your own church. I think that for this last question, it's providential that Lindsay's uh, internet connection was wiped out because normally she would get to ask it, but since she's not here, I'm going to go ahead and do it. So, you know, we've talked about you do a lot of work with us at the RLC. We're all close friends. Uh, but with you being in Texas, most of the interaction we have is between Slack and social media. And so besides baseball and family <laughs> pets, and we should say you got boys who love baseball and you got a number of pets in your house. Uh, I think, it, what is it, three? cats and two dogs oh wow i think it's no i'm let me think here it's it's three dogs and four cats i'm embarrassed to say that (laughs) three dogs and four cats okay well hey you know so you guys are a pet family but besides those things our favorite thing that we get from you on social media are grilling videos (laughs) and home workouts and so look i'm just gonna put you on the spot here for a second tell us you know what is you because look i'll just tell our audience you know I've uh, sampled your culinary skills. You have made both like some of the best, the probably the best ribs I've ever had and one of the best steaks I've ever had. Uh, and so anyway, what is your go-to like culinary specialty and your go-to home gym workout? Tell us about that real quick. 
All right. So uh, <laughs> I do I do love to to smoke meat. I think it's something to do with Texas. Uh, you know, I, I I lived in Arkansas before this, and I grew up in Louisiana. And Louisiana has great, great food. Um, but when I moved to Texas, there was Texas is different. It it is kind of its own country, and and, and I'm sure everybody that's from Texas on the ERLC staff would testify to that, and and, and the banter between Texas and Tennessee in that regard. So, but I, you know, I felt like, gosh, everybody here smokes meat, and so one of the first things we did when we bought a house here was to to buy a smoker, and it's not a big fancy smoker. I mean, there's people here that way better at it than I am. I, 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 I don't know what I'm doing. Um, but my family, uh, really enjoys it. And we, my, probably my favorite thing to do is, uh, baby back ribs, a pork rib. They're great. I use the three, two, one method. And, uh, I mean, they're like, it's like candy meat. It's, it's, it's delicious. It's, it's, it's really good. The other thing too, is it's fairly cheap. And when you have, uh, you have five kids, um, you know, finding cheap food that everyone likes, is always a big plus, and so we we smoke other things, but ribs are probably my 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 favorite. Um, uh, it's it's funny uh, you mentioned <laughs> workout videos. Honestly, a good bit of that is in jest. Um, you know, one of one of our uh, mutual friends is is Andrew Walker, and uh, you know, he loves to run. And you know, I'm one of those that uh, if you caught me running, you probably ought to just follow me because I'm probably running from something. I don't, I don't, I don't run for any other reason. And, uh, so, um, a lot of times I'll post uh, a video just to get at him. It's the same thing with, uh, cooking, uh, the, the, uh, the, the grilling videos, the smoking videos. This is, he's always complaining about, um, people that are, uh, smoking, grilling food, and uh, and lifting weights, and so pretty much my my favorite go to home workout is anything that doesn't include running, and uh, and, and whenever I get to smoke ribs, so that's that's probably where where I'm at on those. But yeah, <laughs> totally agree with you. For our friend Andrew, I actually told him this earlier this week. Running is not a sport; it's a survival tactic, usually from large animals that are coming after you. that's 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 right that's right man well casey really really love that uh all all the way across the board up to the uh all the way to the end of the story about the baby back ribs because man you can do it right and so we just want to say thanks so much man for taking the time to join us uh to talk to us about all this stuff we're really excited about what god is doing uh through you and your ministry uh we will drop a link in the show notes to your newsletter we would love for people to subscribe to that to be encouraged by your writing ministry and all the things that you have going on in service to jesus but brother we just want to say thanks so much for taking the time to join us today well, I thank, thank you guys for having me. And as a local church pastor, I just want to thank you guys for the work that y'all do and um, keep it up, man. you got our support. So now it's time for the lunchroom, where every week we tell you about the things we've been talking about with one another. Brent, you're up first this week. So besides opening day, tell us what else is on your mind. Well, I thought was what was really cool this week uh, because I also, like Lindsay, got my first uh, part of the COVID vaccine. I, I was really telling folks that I was excited because I got the Dolly Parton vaccine. So some of y'all may remember we highlighted this, uh, I don't know, several months ago now. Dolly Parton uh, gave a substantial gift uh, that led to the Moderna vaccine. And so I was able uh, to, to get that this week. And the uh, local newspaper here in Nashville, the, the Tennessean, they had, a, they had a great story about how she's now going to be featured in a comic book 
And honestly, not only is she the, I mean, I mean, it's undisputed. She's the queen of Tennessee. She actually is, I think, a living superhero because she's incredibly talented. She's, she's a wonderful singer. And and now she's doing things uh, like help us move past the, the COVID uh, pandemic. And so she's worthy of a comic book. Uh, that's that's what I think. So that's that's what I'm bringing to the lunchroom this week. 2020 has been Dolly's year from helping with a vaccine, a successful vaccine by way of contributions um, to saving a child on the set of a show or movie or something that she was filming. Dolly has just really, um, really been glowing and sealing her place in royalty, Tennessee royalty. That's what I'm talking about. Real life superhero. So there you go. Well, it's funny because at the beginning of this week, I remembered, I was like, I am talking about this for my lunchroom. And of course, I've totally forgotten. But thankfully, uh, something else was announced today, and so, which is Thursday when we're recording. And so I want that to be my lunchroom, which is season two of The Chosen is coming out on Easter. And we've talked about The Chosen before many episodes back. It it is such a good portrayal of the life of Christ when he is calling the disciples to himself. And I know, I know, I know, usually Christian movies and shows are cheesy, uh, though I do like some of them. Um, usually they are not well done and they cannot hold a candle to other things. But we loved The Chosen, uh, my husband and I. It was phenomenal. And um, we just cannot wait to watch season two. And I would highly recommend it. And you can watch it for free, P.S. Yeah, I mean, I've heard that it's actually excellent. I mean, I've seen people who are real critics of a lot of, you know, spiritually infused uh, stuff or TV shows or movies that say this one actually holds up. It does. It does not disappoint. So you you should sit down even with uh, even with your son, who's old enough, I think, and watch it. Well, that's a good idea. And I actually, I really may sit down and try to do that. That that would be the kind of thing that hopefully could be a teaching opportunity and be something good for us to do together. Uh, for my lunchroom this week, I am actually going to just return to something I mentioned even last week. So last week, I think I talked about Andrew Walker, who's our friend. We already talked about him on the podcast today. Uh, I talked about his new book, uh, Liberty for All, which is coming out on the subject of religious liberty. This week, he had a huge essay uh, at TGC on the subject of theonomy. And so if you're interested at all in kind of political theology, this is one for you to get a cup of coffee and sit down and read. It was uh, really, really interesting. It has been uh, provocative and in, in stirring some really good conversation online, hopefully for the better of trying to help Christians think better about what the Bible would tell us about our approach to government and politics. But that was that. The other thing, though, that is on uh, my mind for the lunchroom this week is that uh, we've talked about before how I am like, I'm a fan of the Enneagram. We talked about the Enneagram uh, on the podcast. I've never actually been like a personality types or strengths finder kind of person or whatever. But this week we had to do an update to at, at the URLC uh, to something called the disc or disc profile. And it was really fascinating because one of the things that this, uh, this 
test or tool did is it shows you how it predicts how your relationships are going to work with other colleagues. And so I took time to look at my relationship with Brent and my relationship with Lindsay. And I got to tell you, uh, I showed a bunch of these things to my wife and we spent some time laughing on the couch about just how accurate some of these things are. And then later I had other friends uh, from work texting me and saying, this is so true about like different parts of our relationship as it was described by this tool. So anyway, that's the thing I'm thinking about this week is just man, I'm grateful for my colleagues. I'm grateful for the wonderful diversity that God has introduced into the world. And even just the the diversity among our own staff, uh, it is really a joy uh, to work with uh, all the folks at the ERLC. And so this week, I'm especially grateful for them. Yeah, Josh, you and um, our, our colleague Marie and I got to have one of those text conversations. And of course, we all love talking about ourselves, right? And But it's also fun to look at uh, the the characteristics of other people and and the descriptions and and well make fun of each other sometimes but then also just better understand one another so that we can uh, work well together which I feel like we already do anyway our team so it was a lot of fun and of course Bobby on our staff will just continue to hold our disc results over our heads for the rest of our lives oh yes oh yes so shout out to Bobby. Like it was a, it was a cool thing. Shout out to Bobby Reed, who is just, man, he is like the, uh, he's too young for us to call him the grandfather of the ERLC, but he is kind of like that father figure that holds us all together. And so look, it's just, this is very much a Bobby pet project, but I'm, it's one I'm grateful for. At least this week, it has been helpful to me and I am usually reluctant to say that. So shout out to Bobby Reed. Well, that's going to do it for the show today. Uh, Just as a reminder, you can find links to all the things we talked about in the show notes. And if you like the podcast, please consider helping us spread the word by sharing this episode on social media or going into your podcast app and leaving us a rating or a brief review. But for Lindsay and Brent and myself, we want to say thanks so much for listening every week. And we look forward to being back with you next week with more content. Mm Mm-hmm.